Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Mallory Murphy. Today is going to be a good one. I have Colin McNair of Copley Fine Art Auctions. He is their decoy specialist. He's also a decoy carver and artist. Hey, Colin, how are you? I am well, Mallory. How are you? Doing good. I also have Katie Burke, manager of the Waterfowling Heritage Center. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about decoy carving, fine art, X-ring decoys, everything cool. So, Colin, tell me a little bit about yourself. How do you end up with the title decoy specialist? Because I honestly think that is the coolest job title ever. Um, (laughs) Tell me how you ended up there. (laughs) So I grew up around decoys. My father is Mark McNair, who is a contemporary decoy carver who started carving back in the early 1970s. And I was homeschooled for first five years of school. So I got to spend a lot of time in his workshop and with my older brother, Ian McNair, who was also a carver. And I started carving from the time I could hold a knife and a piece of wood sold my first decoy at age six, continued actively carving and hunting through college. And then Steve O'Brien Jr. was starting up an auction house uh, about the time I was getting ready to graduate from college. And he offered me a job as the decoy specialist with his new firm, Copley Fine Art Auctions. So I jumped on board with them, moved up to Boston, and I've been the decoy specialist there for the last, uh, this is 12 years now. Wow. I didn't realize it was right after college that you wow. joined me. Yeah, there was no no gap in between. I'd been working on a charter boat. So I went home and did the last season of that in the summer and packed up for Boston in the fall just in time to watch the, uh, the broader markets crash and uh, get to experience the collectibles market and uh, sort of a trial by fire. But fortunately, we were actually uh, all right through through that time back in 2009 through uh, through the teens. Um, but yeah, it's been a been an awesome ride and didn't really know where it was going. But I knew that working with Steve was going to be quite an experience. He's been an absolute game changer in the decoy and sporting art field. Um, and it's just been fun to work alongside him and the rest of the team kind of paving the way for decoys into the 21st century. Yeah. So what do you actually do as decoy specialist for an auction firm? You know, my cocktail conversation version of that is I help people with their collections. Uh, (laughs) Because for most, most folks, the idea of decoys and decoys as collectibles is a little more than they can handle. I know your listenership is certainly going to be far ahead of most folks on that subject. So as a decoy specialist, my, my job, my goal is to identify the best decoys in existence. And these are birds that are made from the early 19th century. So we have stuff that's dated back to 1835, all the way through pieces made today. Um, so I'm looking through those decoys, finding what's available for market and ideally bringing those pieces to market, uh, usually in an auction format. 
So that means working with collectors, dealers, museums, other institutions, uh, and helping them you know, make the right decisions for their decoy collections, be it buying or selling. And the first, first part of that always starts with great inventory. So that's where we spend most of our time. And then where we interface with the public uh, is on the selling side. So that's where we get a lot more kind of public face time. So people usually see me, uh, you know, a little more cleaned up and presenting really nice decoys and a very nice catalog and a formal auction setting. But that's really only the, uh, the back end of the process. Um, and yeah, once we have our inventory together uh, for the auction, we do, you know, switch into that kind of placement side and, um, you know, helping potential bidders and buyers uh, find the right pieces for them and make educated buying decisions for their collections. I have a question about that because I deal with this a lot too. How do you find for the most part how people's collections are? Like I've, I have found personally, like you have, they have the one person who's meticulous and everything is like the collector that's everything. You know, they have everything, all the records of everything. And then you have the other one, who it's like the exact opposite. It's just a kind of like controlled mayhem. Uh, yes and yes. You, you know, when you're walking walking through the park and you see somebody with their dog and you say, you know, that, that person's dog kind of makes sense for that person. Uh, you know, I think collections are, are a lot the same way. It's this incredibly personal uh, extension of the collector or collectors because a lot of times you have couples that collect together and every every collection is just as individual as the person who's putting it together or taking it apart um, so we we see a huge spectrum um, of collecting styles we have collectors that you know don't refer to themselves as collectors but acquisitors perhaps um, and you have people that look at it from the financial side. You have people that look at it from the art side or the history side. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of people generally strike a balance in the middle. Um, but it's a, it's a really diverse and, and fun part of what we do. And I love the decoys. Uh, yeah, indeed, I, I love the decoys, but a huge part of our field is the, the people and the relationships and the experiences. And that's part of what keeps all of us coming back for more. So you've also championed X-raying decoys. This is something I was really wanting to talk to you about. What is the process of X-raying a decoy to y'all? Is it for authentication or put a price range on it? What do you, what, why do you X-ray decoys? That is a great question. So I am the, I am a champion of X-raying decoys. I, I come in a long, a long trail of really, you know, bright, inquisitive people that have been doing this for longer than I've been alive, uh, X-raying decoys for longer than I've been alive. And, you know, I happen to be in a position to have access to a huge amount of uh, important decoys uh, through our inventory and working with our clients. And I also have access to 21st century imaging technology, uh, the digital x-ray being, um, being the, the key tool there. And what we do today is essentially follow Dr. James McCleary's advice 
from back in the early 80s, and that is x-ray every important decoy before it goes to auction. Um, and in the course of doing that, we've x-rayed, I think we're on to getting close to 2,000 decoys at this point. And we're looking for a number of different things. The most obvious thing that we're looking for in a decoy x-ray or the most sort of popular uh, thing that we're doing in a decoy x-ray is looking for um, anything that's a variation from the norm. Uh, so that is looking for brakes that have been repaired, heads that have been replaced, tails that have been replaced, birds that have been repainted. Um, we're looking for birds that, you know, are anything anything that's off of the ideal, just so that we can make a, a clean assessment of what we have in our hands. Because uh, as you can imagine, uh, a decoy after just a few seasons be can become a piece of uh, pretty dynamic history. And you can only, only imagine what happens to a bird after 150 years of hunting and then collecting and, you know, maybe being touched up a little. Um, so there's, a lot of interesting things that pop up in terms of alterations. Um, but that's really just, uh, that's really just one facet of it that gets the most publicity, but it's certainly not the most important part. Uh, when you start to put together a decoy x-ray library, uh, you can draw some comparisons between these pieces and start to notice trends in how the birds are constructed. So I should actually back up and just tell you what we're looking at in a typical duck decoy x-ray. And let's pick a duck decoy from the state of New Jersey made at the turn of the century. Um, the bird's probably going to have a body made out of two pieces of wood that are nailed together with either wire nails or cut nails because they were using both of those um, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And then the head is going to be a separate piece of wood that's screwed onto that, probably from the inside of a hollowed out body. Uh, and then on top of that, we're going to have some lead paint and that lead paint is really going to show up. Uh, and, you know, maybe this decoy got shot a few times. So we're going to see some lead shot embedded in the bird and maybe the bill broke off when it was being gunned. And so that got reset and we'll see a couple of nails or screws reattaching the bill um, from when the gunner did that, you know, a hundred years ago. And yeah, <laughs> you, know, you can just kind of keep going down the, the things that can happen to a bird and how those might show up in an x-ray. And it's in incredibly telling. But can you touch on what is the most interesting thing you've ever found in x-ray? My favorite single decoy as it relates to x-rays is a sleeping pintail from the Delaware River. And the bird had a story of being from the rig of Richard Wistar Davids, uh, who was from the Philadelphia area. He was related to the famous Albert Lang from New York. And this bird was supposed to be from the mid 19th century. So circa 1850, roughly. But we really didn't have anything to put that together on other than the story that had come along with the rig. So we took this bird on on consignment or preparing it for auction. And I'm looking at the notes on it and saying, well, this is all very nice, but 
where is any of this information coming from? And the chain of provenance was was good and we felt comfortable with the piece, but you know, it's it's hard to lock anything down when you're looking back to the time of the Civil War or before the Civil War. And we take an x-ray of the bird from a couple of different angles and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, well, this is interesting. I haven't seen this construction of screw before. And I'm looking at the nails and I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, these, these cut nails you know, have a little bit of a different character than I'm used to. So I sent the x-rays off to a friend of mine who's a building material specialist and he uh, evaluates old houses. So the guy knows nails and screws and materials as well as anybody. And I didn't tell him anything about the bird other than that it was from the East Coast and it was near a metropolitan area. So he gives me a date range back on the bird. And it was it was a pretty tight window. I want to say it was about a 15 year window. And it checked out exactly with the story that we were able to patch together with the bird. So through dumb luck and a totally different track, we had met up with this museum curator who actually owned some birds from this rig. And he had the rest of the provenance all spelled out because he was a history guy. And, you know, he was just sort of lucky to have this information. And we had these two beautiful pieces of dating material come together and put the bird right on about 1850, maybe a little bit earlier. And for me, that was this beautiful use of an x-ray in you know, determining what the object was and when it was from, and then confirming that through totally separate kind of blind means. And you know, that was one of the most fun decoy x-ray experiences I've had. Um, and that was a, a sleeping pintail from the rig of Richard Wistar Davids. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, there's one other really neat decoy x-ray kind of experience that I've had. And this one, you know, that, that Wister Davids bird probably sold for, uh, I think it was $30,000. So not, not jump wow. change, but in the, in the world of, you know, top collectible decoys, there's, there's plenty of inventory above that. One of the most coveted decoys in existence is going to be a dovetail goose. And there's two of them that are in great original paint. They are something like the Holy Grail for decoys. They have these incredible removable heads. They have this elaborate construction um, from the head to the body where there's a lap joint that comes together. Uh, you, have to see, you have to see pictures of it for me to, I'm not going to do it justice. But what we found in this bird is that it had some really unique construction techniques that we hadn't seen in any other decoys. And then it had some other construction materials that were just rare. And there's always been the speculation between the dovetail geese and the dovetail shorebirds that maybe they're by the same maker or maybe the shorebirds were found somewhere else. So they might be from a different region. They both just happen to have dovetails. And when we were looking at the x-rays of the goose next to some of the shorebirds, it just became a slam dunk that, you know, you had the same exact construction techniques in both of them that were literally not seen anywhere else. And we were able to say with certainty for the first time that, yes, in fact, these phenomenal shorebirds were made by the same person. 
that made the goose. And, you know, in the case of this, it's pretty significant because we sold that goose for $810,000. It's the highest price for a decoy in over a decade. And the shorebirds themselves sell for tens of thousands of dollars and have broken the $100,000 mark. Did that up the price of the shorebirds once you figured out that the, the goose was from the same? You know, it, it's not something that's made an immediate impact, but it is important just for the scholarship of these decoys to make those connections and you know have a better idea of what we have in our hands and try to get their history as accurate as possible, you know, while the, the trail is still moderately warm in some cases. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think over time it absolutely will help the shorebirds, um, but it'll take some time for that to show. Yeah. So when you, your dad and your brother, um, it's probably rare that y'all are all three in the shop at the same time, but do you ever try to emulate them, surpass them or bring your own kind of creative style to anything or do y'all y'all's creativity, do y'all kind of feed off each other? I would say that we absolutely feed off each other. So my brother and I just had the supreme advantage of growing up with our favorite and a lot of people's favorite living decoy carver, um, you know, <laughs> under the same roof. And he was a, a incredibly welcoming and generous teacher and, and helper, um, as we were getting started, uh, I think, you know, all three of us have different inclinations and we have different styles. And, you know, once you're able to, once you're able to make a decoy and you kind of get that technical aspect out of the way and you're familiar with the, the materials, uh, I think it's, it's hard not to express yourself. And I'd say the three of us, uh, love to talk about decoys and designs and we'll, we'll, share ideas and we've collaborated in the past. Um, but at the end of the day, we all have our, we all have our own, um, sort of path that we're, that we're following and, you know, inevitably a lot of our work's going to look related and, and it is. Um, but I, I'd say that my brother and I are incredibly competitive and a lot of things, um, and decoys, uh, we're never really a space where we felt like we had to compete because we were both just kind of confident doing our own thing. Um, so it's been, been a great relationship. Yeah. Do y'all hunt over y'all's decoys or are they strictly for art? So I love hunting over, uh, over, over McNair decoys. And, you know, we grew up hunting over, um, you know, mostly birds that my brother had carved. And we've hunted over a few birds that I've made. Um, you know, a lot of times when we make something that we hunt over, uh, it'll go into the rig for a season or two and then it'll get sold. Um, so, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to hunt over a rig of decoys that's worth thousands of dollars, uh, for obvious reasons. So, um, so yeah, yes, we do. And, you know, it's easier to, to hold on to a few dove decoys and, Last year, I made a, a turkey hen that, that I took out hunting and, and shot, my, shot my first turkey over. Um, you know, I made some fishing lures back in the day. Um, yeah, it's, it brings an entirely different uh, element to the hunting experience 
when when you bring your own decoy to the party um and it's a it's a game changer i recommend anybody that's ever thought about doing it give it a shot because my golly it feels good to watch a bird fly into your own decoy that you made with your bare hands. Yeah. <laughs> well, it makes me laugh. You say you're not competitive with your, or you're competitive with your brother, but I can imagine, well, with my brother, when we're hunting, we're extremely competitive. <laughs> what, who shot? Yeah, well, who shot what? I can't imagine if we also made the decoy. Like, I'd yeah. be totally like, well, my decoy well, is look the what one my decoy in. Yeah. How many birds <laughs> mine brought in? Well, it's, you know, I, I would say when it comes to shooting, uh, yeah, we're competitive and he's, he's better than I am. Uh, but when it comes to decoying birds in, I mean, ultimately it's a collaborative effort. And, you know, when you're out hunting, everybody's got to be pulling in the same direction. Uh, Ian, Ian makes more working decoys that we hunt over than I ever have. So, so thank you, Ian. <laughs> I would totally get mad at my brother and just like shoot the head off of one of his decoys out there and just walk away. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. Well, there, there's been, there's still some banding disputes in my, band disputes in my family that probably would end yeah. pretty badly. And his dog always picks them up. So <laughs> he always claims them. <laughs> When, when you're, when you have band disputes, that's an uptown problem. That means that you, you've got the bands coming in. So you're doing all right there. <laughs> How can we reach out to you? Where can we find out more about your decoys? So you can look up uh, the company I work with, Copley Fine Art Auctions at copleyart.com. That's one word, Copley Art. And you can look up my website for some of my birds at colinmcnair.com. That's Colin with one L. Uh, my brother, Ian McNair, is at ian-mcnair.com. And Ian's other occupation in the waterfowling world is his waiter company. That's highanddryoutdoors.com. So the, the McNairs are coming at you with, with waterfowl from just about every direction. <laughs> Seven different kinds of smoke right there. There you go. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show, Colin. Thanks so much for having me. Special thanks to our guest today, Colin McNair, decoy specialist for Copley Fine Art Auctions. I'd also like to thank my co-host, Katie Burke, and our producer, Clay Baird. But most importantly, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us today and for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.